Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. A KUOW listener heard an interview between our All Things Considered host, Kim Malcolm, and the Washington Secretary of State. And that listener thought, I'm a registered voter. I can do that. We'll tell you what that voter did and how that story turned out. Coming up on this program, we are first going to introduce our panel of three excellent local journalists the excelling Seattle Times investigations editor, Jonathan Martin. Welcome back. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that kind of oversold. Excellent people it. excel. Okay. Um, how about crushing it? Freelance health journalist, Joanne Silberner. Well, thank you. And it's great to be here. What's left, Catherine? Uh, dominating the space. <laughs> Insider investigations correspondent, Catherine Long. Welcome back. Hey there. Glad to be here, especially with that introduction. Yeah, sure. Good to have everybody here. Uh, and you can watch the show as always. We are live streaming the program on YouTube. Okay. Uh, a, a tough week in a way. I know this isn't Buffalo, but but it did get cold enough to kill uh, this week. King County said at least five people died of exposure in Seattle. William Maccabetus, Mary Tesfa, and Jay Anderson were all in their 60s. Maccabetus was found outside. Anderson found in a vehicle near the Ballard Library. 53-year-old David Tinker died in a residence. 37-year-old Adam Elk Nation died outside. KUOW spoke with a man named Howard Cartwright in Ballard, who is heating his hands over a propane stove on the ground. Cartwright said if his stove were to run out of gas, he might go into a shelter. It's tough sleeping out here on the concrete. Draws the life from you. In time, kills you being out here on it. And uh, you were saying, Catherine, that Harborview saw a a lot of people come in with uh, just complaints and in a tough spot. That's right. Cold cold weather-related injuries and, mm-hmm. and illnesses. Um, you know, something that struck me in the coverage of, of this week's uh, fatally cold weather was that the city's three emergency cold weather shelters were all operating, operating at or near capacity, even though they had added beds. Uh, I, I really appreciated KOW's reporting on this, um, uh, especially Casey Martin uh, followed a man trying to find emergency shelter in, in this cold weather um, and because of eligibility requirements, there were only two that he could he could try. Um, it's it's uh, it's demoralizing a little bit. <laughs> um, but you know, one thing I'm I'm interested to to hear from uh, from Jonathan because he's covered homelessness at the Seattle Times for for so long is mm-hmm. whether you think we're getting any better at handling these types of extreme weather incidents. Well, they're they're good at uh, certainly setting up these cold weather shelters, uh, the emergency um, shelters. The the problem with those shelters is that they are um, they're congregate shelters with basically mats on a floor, you know, sort of mats on a in a gym, um, and they're good at keeping people alive for um, for a for a moment, but they are really ineffective at ending homelessness. So um, I think that they they have gotten uh, a pretty uh, Seattle and also I think that some of the other outlying um, outlying cities have certainly gotten more responsive earlier. Um, but um, yeah, well, I think there's a little bit of a bright spot from the public health point of view here in that we didn't see any deaths or haven't heard any at least from carbon monoxide or from a kerosene heater or curtains catching fire or any of the deaths that at one point were pretty were too common. I remember years ago, the Seattle Times was running every day on its front page for a little bit, warnings in 13 different languages. And the public health department has put out posters and put out information on, you know, how to avoid carbon monoxide poisoning and, you know, not to have heaters going when there's no air circulation. And it looks like it worked. And, you know, when public health works, nobody notices because nobody's dying. But I think it, it is worthy of note that you know, there was an intervention that was started years and years ago that seems to really be effective. I, you know, the in terms of the deaths, I assume that most of these deaths are homeless people. I think it's probably a fair assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague, uh, Danny Westneat, wrote a column recently about the number of homeless deaths um, overall. Um, and the trend is just astonishing. He had uh, that he had a figure in his column that um, 
The number of deaths for people living outside had tripled since the start of the since the de- declaration of the emergency um, state of emergency on homelessness in the city, um, and was up a th- by a third just year over year last year to this year. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's just a reminder what a an astonishing problem we have, and I kind of feel like with I, when I saw the n- number five of people who died outside, I thought. Actually, seems kind of small to me, given given the scope of the problem and kind of how desensitized I think we're getting to um, the consequences of one of the worst homelessness problems in the country. You know, years ago I did a, some stories out of Minneapolis where it, it's very cold all winter long, always, and they were, had they had I think that year maybe two dozen or more than two dozen people who died and some had been turned away from shelters and had gone you know into the next snowbank and what they had figured out was that uh, because people were showing up at shelters drunk or stoned or you know in uh, some sort of state they were being turned away and they had nowhere to go so they opened a couple of wet shelters you know shelters where you're allowed mm-hmm. to drink as long as you're not being obstreperous you know they they took a lot of people in and uh it changed some of the numbers do we have wet shelters here i don't even know we do yeah and the emergency shelters that were open this week even allowed pets which i thought was a oh they did mm-hmm. well yeah yeah That's you know great. one one uh very sad thing i think about that interview clip that we heard at the start of this segment was that it was taped i believe very close to where one of the people died sleeping in their car in Ballard, uh, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, very close to the Ballard Public Library. Is that, mm-hmm. am I remembering I so. that correctly? Um, and this, uh, KUOW had a, a fantastic profile obituary of this of this man who died. And um, it's just, uh, it's really sad to hear about uh, this, this poor man sleeping in his car with uh, his, his dog. Catherine, you were just telling us that you were in Portland this week, <laughs> uh, which made me think of that... Um, I, I, I think it was ice that brought down a a tree limb. Um, apparently, a couple were getting into an SUV, and they put their baby in first, this nine-month-old baby. Tree branch comes down, knocks a power line down onto the car, live wire. Uh, a witness also said there was a what, the, what this witness called a tiny fire underneath or near the car. The man pulled the baby out, and as he was walking up this icy driveway, he slipped, fell, slid back down into the power line, which electrocuted and killed him. The mother went to rescue the child. She slipped and slid into the power line and died. A teenager nearby tried to rescue the baby. He slipped and slid into the power line and died. And another teenager... Uh, named Majaya Washington, who had witnessed all of this, she saw the baby move his head, and she went after him too. And she was, and she, in doing so, she touched the electrocuted man. So there was some conversation about, wow, it's a, kind of amazing that she didn't get electrocuted. She, but she managed to save this child who was in good condition. Was it, have you, it was all of Portland? I that would was assume. all over the news in yeah, Portland. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yes, everybody was talking about this unbelievable tragedy for this family uh, and bravery from Jaya Washington to to do this. Um, you know, one thing I had I had not known um, uh, before this is uh, public health agencies were were telling folks after this um, this horrific incident that if you there's a power line that goes down in your car, you should stay in your car yeah. because the rubber tires will protect you. Mm. I I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an insulation again. So there's not a there's not a circuit that lets the electricity flow. That's right. But especially if I mean, first of all, just the shock. But especially if you see a fire or we're sort of conditioned fire near car. You know, there's just so many reasons to understandably to want to get that child out of this car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Seattle, somebody you know, n- nothing on the scale of what happened there in Portland, but um, but I saw somebody set a fire in an alley in Pioneer Square by an art gallery. Did you see this? Apparently Mm -hmm. for warmth, and the fire spread into the building and damaged uh, more than 100 artworks, including Picassos Mm. and Rembrandts. Mm. And the firefighters couldn't just spray water everywhere. They would have damaged even more. Mm. But this is just kind of the, you know, there's there's the the issues that we were talking about, fatal, dangerous, cold. Then you just have... um, 
the school closures and delays, the pipes bursting. I saw Charles Brudetti and The Stranger linking that to the failures of capitalism, you know, <laughs> our sort of infrastructure, pipes bursting, uh, people, people falling, mountain passes, you know, hazardous yeah. and closed. Commute's tough, which made it a good time to take light rail. <laughs> except, except not. <laughs> not because of their fixing some damaged rails. And, the, and I, I, have, I, I actually enjoy transit. And I am driving this week. I'm staying. I'm going nowhere near. And it's going to go on for like a couple more weeks or something. Mm-hmm. So, And as you said, as you put it, Catherine, we got some new phraseology cold weather phrases in her vocabulary this week. Yes, that's right. I learned this week about frost heaving and forbidden popsicles. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Wait. Do people not know? You know, I grew up on the East Coast. Do people here really not know about frost heaves? I mean, I'd never heard of it. I've never heard that term. Never went driving in Vermont. Never went. Wow. <laughs> it, it's a, you know, it, it's the joke in, in Minnesota. You know, they have two seasons, uh, win, winter and road repair. And that road <laughs> repair is mostly from the frost heaves. Well, Joanne, do you want to tell us what frost heaving is? Yeah, it's where the ground freezes up and pushes if there's something solid on top. You know, the ground expands with the freezing and it'll push whatever it is up and around. It'll break roads into, you know, bits that need to be paved over. Now, I haven't I haven't heard of this happening with our roads around here, but Seattle Times published some really cool photos of it happening at turf-covered play fields. Well, those uh, are beautiful. I around love, the Seattle I, area. I looked at them and said, why are, they, why do, are they doing this? People don't know. But then I thought, well, these photos are so pretty. They're the, so pretty. The way pretty. the frost heaves came up right under the, the field lines, they, the white they field looked lines. Like a, they looked like a, a giant's rumpled bedclothes to oh, me. Oh, it's it beautiful. Was so, it was so lovely. Are and they then, just going to settle again, or is this going to be a huge hit to the Parks Department? Well, to... that's what the Seattle Times reported, is that they're, they're all going to be fine. Oh, really? They're just going to go away. They might have gone away already. Who knows? <laughs> we should go look at some parks. Wow. <laughs> I figured frost heave was when you, you're shoveling the frost off your sidewalk and then you heave it over your shoulder. <laughs> or or people heaving uh, books by Robert Frost, uh, <laughs> offensive poetry, <laughs> out of our public libraries. Or maybe people wheezing and heaving after they've shoveled their driveways. Frost heave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. good point. And then the forbidden popsicles. uh, Washington's (laughs) Department of Natural Resources published this this beautiful, very funny photo of um, these baby trees. They're covered in these uh, bubbles of ice. And it it looks almost magical, uh, but apparently this is something they do for baby trees. When there's a big there's a big freeze uh, forecast, they spray them with layers of water to create a protective ice shell around them. They look like like large pieces of candy these these uh trees with the sun hitting them and they're so close to the ground but mm-hmm. dnr tells us forbidden popsicles do not eat stay away from those baby trees but see now again that's something you learn back east that you know metal pipes or handrails you don't put your tongue on them <laughs> i knew that but i might have i might have tried to put my tongue on a baby tree i don't know <laughs> yeah that's true it wouldn't it wouldn't stick the way it would stick right, right. to metal but still all right. I guess that, that that's enough cold talk for now. I you know I hope people are as safe as possible. By the way, consider the avalanche danger as things start to heat you know back up. It uh, it could be a little rough. Um, I do since we're talking about I, the 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 weather and we we began this talking about people dying outside. This all puts a fine point on the risks that people face when they when they live outdoors and the new. Seattle City Council that voters have installed seems more open to clearing away homeless encampments, which Jonathan is controversial. And in fact, the Seattle Times interviewed two people who are well-known advocates for unsheltered folks, and they disagreed about whether clearing encampments is a good idea. That was interesting. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, one of the <clears throat> one of those advocates is named Tim Harris. Um, who was the founder of Real Change um, magazine or um, uh, street newspaper? newspaper yeah, um, and he was. Uh, I got to know Tim when he was on uh, on the board of um, Project Homeless, which I ran for the Seattle Times for a while. Um, Tim's uh, Tim's uh, journey on on sweeps. I think he would. I think you acknowledge he's had a journey on this. Um, was from being more of a classic anti-sweeps advocate. Uh, and by to, the, I just want to, when we're talking about, sometimes that word itself can be yes. controversial. Well, I think well, people, actually, let me come back to that. Okay, I was, okay. I was, I was going um, to now, actually, he was arguing with or debating with Tiffany McCoy, who is one of the employees of Real Change, mm-hmm. uh, about 
that there is there should be. I think she should, was at the advocacy director at Real Change, and now she's at a nonprofit right. that is yeah, yeah, yeah. advocating for right. affordable housing. Um, and Tim said, you know, one of the quote I pull a quote here. He said, um, when we deny that there are the impacts in the community from from uh, tent camps, advocates like uh, av- av- advocates look like we're naive. It is so profoundly self defeating to deny the impact that homeless encampments have on the community, or say these communities should just absorb the impacts because homeless people have it worse. Um, Tim uh, Tim came at this from a small business perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, you know, as I mentioned, I was the editor of the, um, the Seattle Times homeless team for a while. And we actually, uh, I really wanted to avoid the term sweeps. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very loaded term. Uh, and I think that what Tim is reflecting there is that there are consequences for both sweeping, removing tent encampments and not in, uh, not removing tent encampments. Right. And as a compassionate community, we have, we have tended towards the... Uh, not removing uh, tent encampments, certainly as much as other other places in the country have. But I think that is shifting. I think that there were I mentioned before, uh, you know, the Danny Westney column about uh, about basically compassion fatigue, where we kind of uh, we kind of get a nerd to the incredible volume of homeless uh, people that have died living outside. I think that um, the more you see tent encampments, the the less uh, empathetic we get. And I think that um, I think Tim's Tim's evolution here is an interesting one because I think this it's a little bit of a microcosm of the city as a whole. But surprising to me, just really surprising that he said that. Mm. Well, what's interesting to me is that both of the advocates who who spoke in this article recognized that encampment removals are futile. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I, I think very that, few people go into shelter who are right. Exactly. I think it's sixteen uh, percent was what the reported great came cited in 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 the article. Um, and uh, Tim's Tim Tim Harris's point was, uh, you know, if you have a futile solution that's sharing the burden, it kind of works. But if you have a futile solution that's actively doing harm to vulnerable people, that's a problem. So and the vulnerable people here being the business, vulnerable people here being the homeless people. Ah. So uh, his argument was that we all know that removing homeless encampments is futile from the standpoint of getting folks into more permanent shelter. But if uh, if businesses are suffering along the way, if they're, if they're, if they're, if the burden of these uh, encampments is is not being shared, that's um, that's that's not a great solution uh, for, by for anyone. burden sharing. I just want to make it clear he's talking about. Yeah, maybe it's futile that, because the the knock is well, they're just going to go down the street, and that's he's right. saying yeah, they're going to go down the street away from the business that's been dealing with this particular encampment. Right. So moving it around few, in a futile way, right. futile way, is, is it's not, it, it, it helps, it helps somebody. But it helps somebody, but it hurts somebody else right. by and, that measurement. And Tiffany McCoy's response to that was, uh, that is, that is dehumanizing. Uh, that is, you know, accepting, uh, treating homeless people as if we can just warehouse them in different parts of the city as opposed to recognizing that every time we remove these encampments, uh, it is deeply disruptive to their lives and does 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 worse. Th- it's, it's, it's possibly worse than futile. <laughs> and it treats it like it's that individual camper's fault instead of the system's you know, fault. One, one of the things that I got to know and being the uh, editor of the team is not all camps are created equal. Um, and Tim actually re- references this, that the longer a, a tent camp is in place, the more likely that it's going to be uh, basically taken over by drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that's true or not. I trust Tim would know. Um, but um, it was interesting to see some tent camps were very well self-regulated. Um, you would see that there's actually some camps are very clean, orderly. Um, and then there's other ones that are just look like chaos. And I came to realize, like, the ones that look like chaos are probably have a lot of drugs in them and also probably a lot of sex trafficking. So I think it's a nuance. We need to have a nuanced conversation about what removal looks like that, yes, it does. It is doing harm to people moving them from one place to another. However, there can also be a harm being done to people by having a tent camp remain in place and not having uh, a intervention. So that goes to a poor strategy or resource deployment for the homelessness community if there isn't a better alternative than the camp as well. Well, intervention, I think, was a really interesting word that you just used because 
homeless camp removal is one type of intervention, but we can mm-hmm. imagine numerous types of interventions right. that maybe, you know, we're starting to talk about a little bit more, right, with um, these new types of teams that are being set mm-hmm. up and, and just starting mm-hmm. <laughs> to work uh, at, at engaging with homeless folks. Um, but uh, interventions that maybe address some of the problems that, Jonathan, you just raised and, and Tim also raised about drugs and, and sex trafficking, Maybe that doesn't involve removal. Uh, maybe that involves something else. Yeah. But is Tim's idea, I mean, to move it down the street? Because what's he thinking about, about the people down the street, the people who he's live down the street? That, he's saying that, the, that if that's the – that's assuming he, – he's assuming the premise that it's, it's futile. Will, people will just move four blocks down and four blocks down. He's saying that's a kind of burden sharing because it's moving encampments around instead of why am I the small business stuck with the whatever's happening at this possibly uh, drug infiltrated camp, right? Is that that's I his so. that's his argument. And then the idea is that it would the the encampment might move, you know, to a couple of blocks away and then again to a couple of blocks away so that over the course of a year businesses will get They'll all get hit, but not constantly. Well, Portland is having this argument as well right now because it's uh, establishing some sites for permanent encampments. And mm. obviously the, the siting decisions for that are very contentious. I, I think it's, an, it's a really interesting policy decision because when we were talking about tiny house villages you know, several you know, quite a while ago, and now there's a lot of tiny house villages. The One of the arguments was we're, we're you know, basically – um, we're basically changing the definition of habitable conditions to sheds. Right. And it's basically the new affordable housing is is a shed. Right. Uh. And it feels like the the permanent encampments is actually even – it's a st- certainly a step below that. So um, there is like kind of a slippery slope towards um, – uh, towards the bottom, uh, certainly right, right, and and the, the folks interviewed for this for this piece also recognize that right. Like one another type of of intervention that that was imagined was uh, maybe we have a, a campment removal, but we don't throw away people's tents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we allow them to be able to uh, set up set up a shelter for themselves um, uh, more easily. Going and access forward. their stuff and store exactly, store their stuff exactly. That's yeah. exactly what you were saying, uh, Jonathan. It's, you know the the new the new most affordable housing. Is, is a tent. Yeah. Okay, we need to, this is a great discussion mm-hmm. that we will continue to have as we've been, as we will. In the city, we have this new uh, city council who, uh, that presumably has a, 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 a different attitude, a more classically conservative, so, so to speak, attitude towards some of these issues. That city council is adding another member. They have a vacancy. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to to see how that is proceeding and who might be the new city council member because, uh, you know, it's only, what is it, nine people on the council? That's a, it's an important decision. We're going to take a break first and come back with more of what happened this week on Week in Review. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. This is KUOW's Week in Review. We're right in the middle of it here. I'm your host, Bill Radke, and I've got the Seattle Times' Jonathan Martin and health journalist Joanne Silberner and insiders Catherine Long, and we're discussing the news of the week. We're uh, live-streaming the show on YouTube, and our next topic is, I I presume you remember that three Tacoma police officers were acquitted last month of murdering Manuel Ellis during an arrest four years ago. Ellis was a 33-year-old black man who died after telling officers at least five times that he couldn't breathe. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide caused by oxygen deprivation from physical restraint, but the officer's lawyers said that Ellis died from the methamphetamine in his system and an enlarged heart, and that the officer's actions were justified because Ellis fought them with, quote, extraordinary strength. This week, Tacoma Police Department announced that an internal investigation found that the three officers did not violate the department's use of force policy. And all three officers 
will voluntarily leave Tacoma Police and the department will pay them half a million dollars each in addition to the paid leave they've been receiving since Ellis's death. This did not go over well with Ellis's sister, Monet Carter-Mixon, who addressed, it a city, addressed a city council meeting hours after the agreement was announced. It's a shame that you guys felt it was okay to pay millions of dollars to Killer's Cop, plus almost four years worth of salary. The Tacoma Police Union said, quote, the conclusion is resounding and consistent, exonerated, unfounded, and not guilty, end of quote. Jonathan, you've been following this, and along with your staff, what's your reaction? Yeah, I've had the pleasure of editing Patrick Malone's coverage. He's now written about this case for three years. Uh, the I, I had to admit, Patrick and I talked about this, and we we didn't think this story was going to be quite as controversial um, as as it as it as it did. I think maybe we were a little inured to the uh, all of the developments of this case, um, but. The cops had indicated the officers' attorneys had indicated after their exoneration, their acquittal. By exoneration, by the way, is different than acquittal. Yeah. Uh, acquittal at the trial that they probably weren't going to come back. Um, but basically, they were cleared because uh, the Tacoma Police Department policies were so silent about the uh, tactics that were used um, to subdue Manuel Ellison and ultimately that led to his death, including chokeholds uh, and the use of a hobble strap, which is basically a would look like a hog tie. Um, and the police chief in um, in clearing these officers, by the way, they, they did the one thing that they did cite one of the officers for was the officer's uh, violated the policy on courtesy to the public <laughs> by telling Manuel Ellis to shut the blank up as he was saying he couldn't breathe. Yeah. So um, it's a little bit of a strange... They didn't say please. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's darkly um, ironic. Uh, so the... I, I, I'll, I'll feel like I'm talking too much this show, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, the I, this, this story to me is a tidy summary of the divides that have been widened by this trial. Um, the police chief issued a very, I thought, heartfelt apology for the what he said was the oppression, abuse and dehumanization all carried out under the color of law of people of color, um, acknowledging basically historically biased policing. The police union calls this a reckless witch hunt, used the word exoneration. And one of the officer's attorneys said basically he had to leave because the uh, because the city couldn't assure his safety while on the job. So. Um, Anyway, this 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 case continues to go forward. There still is a civil trial that's going to be happening with the family is sued to come on police. Um, and there's also a DOJ investigation that is underway of the uh, state uh, case. Well, who had to leave? You said someone had to leave. Well, the uh, uh, Timothy Rankin, one of the oh, um, one of the officers. officers. Uh, right. Yeah. Think about the, you know, the police chief. Uh, doing this and and reading his statement and he, you know he said basically it was policy at the time that's what guided my decisions but even if it was policy I, what a bind he must have been in and how do the Tacoma taxpayers feel about this putting they're giving 1.5 million dollars to the three to go to go away and, and by the way plus their accrued vacation sick time um, pensions so yeah. it's it's the actual cash value is more than and I don't know whether I should bring this up. My, my husband said, "No, don't don't bring that up." The 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 well, chief of police, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that the chief of police is black himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, what is I don't you know I don't know him. I haven't followed him. What might be going on in his head to be doing this in this way? The mayor is also black, by the way. Right. Um, well, speaking of of divides that have been deepened by this case, you know, predictably to me, this after this case ended as as well as it could have for these three officers, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, two other officers from the Tacoma Police Department uh, talked to Jason Rance and say that uh, this uh, is a very uh, conservative, conservative uh, radio host. Radio yeah. host. Uh, they they say that uh, the police chief's statement acknowledging these historical wrongs and and trying to apologize for them. Uh, would lead to the extinction of the police force. <laughs> not these officers' actions, not the trust that was broken with the community over this case, but uh, uh, the chief's attempt to apologize was what is going to bring the Tacoma Police Department down. Well, the police chief talked about uh, atrocities, uh, acts of oppression, abuse, and dehumanization. Uh, I recognize the atrocities spanning the last 30 years up to the present. 
and I think these I think these other officers were saying the a jury has acquitted these officers. The police chief is announcing that an internal investigation found they did their jobs according to the policy. And is he now accusing them of committing a racially motivated atrocity that they weren't even I don't know whether they were even legally accused of anything having to do with race you know, much less convicted. Wasn't that there? That's, that's not how I read the statement, but okay. yeah, that is that is certainly how they took it. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, if that's how other people read the statement. I actually okay. found it useful to have the unspoken spoken. I think that this is one of the feelings of police officers. Some, some uh, certainly some, it's, uh, by, I don't want to overgeneralize. I, think, I don't think we should overgeneralize. Some, I think, in law enforcement feel persecuted right now. I think that the legacy of uh, the, I mean, the tale of the, uh, defund movement, I think, really resonates still with uh, with some folks in law enforcement. And so I think this kind of feeds into this, the reactions after the acquittal and now the clearing. I think that um, I think they they feel like they won this. They won this this fight and the court jury cleared them. The officer, the police chief cleared them. And so they should walk away as wrongfully, uh, wrongfully accused. So policy is now changed on chokeholds and whatever you call that hobble. Yeah, I know you asked me. I, I believe so. I I'm, I I I think that the I know there was a number of policies that changed um, when these gaps in TPD policy were identified as part of this case. I think the hobble strap and the chokeholds. Actually, I think chokeholds are banned statewide, if I recall. Like if it was, I think that was a um, that was state legislation, and then after they. Um, uh, after the racial protests. Mm-hmm. And a couple of other things. The Tacoma City Council, the same day uh, this week, approved a new police union contract. And a couple of the changes, the department is now required to suspend officers charged with serious crimes without pay. Ah. And the internal investigation doesn't have to wait until the criminal prosecution is over. That I'm not sure about. Is that a suggestion that the jury acquittal had something to do with the internal clearing? I don't know, but that's now you 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 can have you can just start the investigation and not not wait for the criminal proceeding to conclude. Well, you, Tacoma chose to do several things that were more uh, beneficial to the officers, including not starting the. The uh, investigation, the internal affairs investigation. Other cities have um, have fired people. I think Derek Chauvin was was fired before he even went to trial. But are you saying um, waiting for the jury acquittal kept allowed them to keep their jobs, or how did it help the officers to wait? Yeah, if the if the internal affairs say that internal affairs investigation come back and said they all violated policy and right. they should be fired. Right. If that had happened in you know in 2020 when the incident happened then they wouldn't have been able to keep their their jobs in the yeah. pay while they're while they're waiting 3 years for trial. I see. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um anyway, I, TP Tacoma did make choices here. Uh and I think that's one of the things for the I'm not a resident of Tacoma, but maybe talking to your elected leaders about why they chose to do um things um and remember they would need to do things differently in the future. Um but other cities uh in similar circumstances have taken very di- made different choices than uh, than Tacoma did. One more question was one that you asked, Catherine, was what now what for these officers? Well, one thing my colleagues and I did last year was we examined what happened to 70 police officers who were involved in high-profile killings of civilians. And we found that many of them tried to get jobs working as police officers elsewhere. Uh, some of them were able to. Some of them encountered community pressure um, that uh, made it difficult for them to, to retain those jobs once their hiring had been discovered. Mm. Yeah. And the Seattle Times pointed out uh, the history of investigations into some of these officers. I never know what information is available to or to to a police department or what they even consider regarding somebody's record. Right. Okay. Um, Since we're talking about policing, before we take a break, I want to tell listeners about this proposed law in Olympia at at the state legislature where they're considering barring law enforcement from using deceptive tactics in interrogations. If an officer intentionally lies to a suspect a suspect about evidence they have or about how a confession could make the law be more lenient on them, then any statement the suspect gives could be inadmissible. And, and Catherine, would that be a first in the nation? 
That that would be a first in the nation. There are a few states that prohibit police from lying to minors during interrogations, but uh, none that I'm aware of prohibit them from from lying uh, writ large. Um, and this is also a little bit different from the rule change that Seattle just passed that uh, barred police from using ruses, except in some very specific circumstances. Um, so that that is that is separate. Those ruses that the Seattle Police Department was talking about were related to things like, um, for instance. Uh, pretending that there is a group of white supremacists coming to yep. uh, <laughs> to the the occupied zone in Capitol Hill in 2020 uh, that had pretty disastrous consequences. Um, but uh, you know, one thing that that I was struck by in reading the coverage of this proposed uh, this proposed legislation is just how often police do lie during interrogations. Uh, I was reading an article in, in Crosscut, I believe, uh, that cited evidence showing that police lie about lie during interrogations about 30% of the time, which... 30% of the investigations. Right. In 30% of the investigations. Yeah. 30% of the interrogations, uh, police lie. Um, And conversely, uh, when we look at folks who have been exonerated using DNA evidence, about uh, 30% of those folks uh, were originally convicted because police lied or misled them during questioning. Um, yeah, but I, you know, if there are listeners out there who are surprised by all this, I, I'm with you. I somehow thought that maybe in the Miranda rights or somewhere in there, there was something that prevented police from lying routinely. But no, there's nothing to prevent that. I did not know that. If this had been law in the 1970s when I was a kid, it would have uh, eliminated most TV cop shows <laughs> where because they always they would say. We know you did it. We got the proof. <laughs> Admit it. We'll go easy on you. That's how they talk for some reason in a very, very gravelly voice. Um, yeah. I, I, the the crosscut article was really, really good on this case. Um, this this law. Um, it had included the testimony from um, a guy named Ted Bradford, who was one of the um, one of the exoner. He's been exonerated um, after being convicted of rape and serving ten years. And he, he said he had this nine-hour interrogation where they lied to him during it. And he said, I confessed only because I thought it was gonna, I was going to get out. I did the only way to get out of this and that my DNA, the DNA evidence would clear me. Well, it turned out the DNA evidence was inconclusive. And his confession during this, um, uh, during this interrogation process, which he was lied to, ended up convicting him. Um, so I think that the, the, the point about the, the consequences of the lie – um, I know police say it's useful and can lead to c- convictions, but you got to. In gotta fact, kinda... I just want to underline what you just said. A, cr- a crosscut quoted the, st- the d- a director right. from the State Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs opposing this proposed law in Olympia, James McMahon, saying, "Quote: Sometimes we have to lie to people to get them to tell the truth. That's just an unfortunate reality of law enforcement." I, I, I think in this moment where you have this incredible divide, like we were just talking about. In Tacoma, is this really is the, is the line really worth the erosion of public trust? At a moment, I think that probably law enforcement would could use more public trust. And, and we're ex- exporting this. That crosscut article, which I agree was excellent, referred to something called the Reed Technique, which is it, it's a, a, a company that goes out and teaches this process of you know how to use lies, how to be effective with it. And they they've gone to countries like Iraq and to India, and they've taught this technique. So what a thing to export. And we have a bit of a local celebrity testifying in support of this bill, Amanda Knox, who Mm. uh, was wrongfully convicted of the murder of her roommate in Italy. And I actually had not realized uh, that one reason she was convicted was because police claimed in a 53-hour interrogation to have evidence that she had committed the crime. And she said that that led her to make false statements. Right, like five days of being... uh, you know, being barraged, a, with being questions. barraged. That's a yeah. good word. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So, again, this we've been discussing a proposed uh, law at the state legislative level uh, banning law enforcement from using these kind of deceptive tactics in interrogations. So we'll follow that and other laws. I think another proposal, a uh, proposed law will come up here on Week in Review. We're going to take a break and whip through some more stories, tell you what happened this week and what it means. We're going to be right back. Thank you. 
You are listening, perhaps watching at YouTube, but uh, you're at least listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with Catherine Long from Insider, freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner, and investigations editor Jonathan Martin, comma, Seattle Times. And uh, as we've told you, a group of voters filed a legal challenge to keep Donald Trump off Washington's March primary ballot. One of those voters, Kitsap County Middle School teacher Frankie Ithaca, told KUOW the challenge was based on Trump's involvement in the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol. To me, that looks like an insurrection. And our Constitution explicitly bars people who have engaged in an insurrection to run for office. But this week, a judge disagreed. Thurston County Superior Court Judge Mary Sue Wilson ruled that in our state, it's up to the Secretary of State to set the ballot unless they make a clear mistake, and she found no such mistake. The court is denying the request of the petitioner electors to take any action that would direct Secretary of State to remove former President Donald J. Trump's name from presidential primary ballots. There was also a request that the court address general election ballots. The court declines to reach that request as the court finds that it is premature and under legal standards potentially not yet ripe. Not yet ripe. A listener named Nick wrote in and said, I and millions of other immigrant citizens of the U.S. who've never participated in, in, in an insurrection, never been charged with a felony, will never be eligible to be on the ballot for president. Knowing how hard I studied the Constitution to pass the immigration exam, I feel confident that most, if not all, naturalized citizens understand the Constitution better than Trump. <laughs> Perhaps smarter people than me can explain why this is a way to get the best leadership for this country. Opines one listener. What was your reaction? I... I... <laughs> I'm a little reluctant to say this, but I'm not sure this is good precedent. Like, I don't, I don't think that uh, you know, I, trying to keep uh, presidential candidates off ballots uh, is um, is uh, could easily turn out um, as a bad precedent. Uh, I think let the voters decide. I actually, I actually think the outcome of this was a great precedent in mm-hmm. that uh, uh, the the judge ruled that uh, these these voters did not have a leg to stand on, and that that Trump mm-hmm. should still yep. be allowed to be on the ballot. Um, I think it's great that uh, voters uh, want to express their disapproval with possible presidential candidates in a variety of ways, and this is this is one such way. And and um, I think the judge's ruling is. Uh, she only spent like ten minutes or something uh, on the on the case. It was very quick. The well, issue they, of ripeness is, I think, a, a key one for me, right? Because the, yeah. <laughs> the 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 case about about Trump engaging in insurrection is not going to be decided until later this summer at the earliest. Yeah, and it's going to be a Supreme Court, right? Uh, a Supreme Court case because Colorado and and then the, was it New Hampshire? I think mm-hmm. um, so. Colorado I, I, and Maine. Yeah, and I I just think in, the, in terms of this, it's not just this Washington State case. I think the overall the effort to keep Trump off the ballot. Because the insurrection clause is concerning to me. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments next month on this uh, constitutional question. Meanwhile, a Washington state legislator is backing a law to keep Trump off the fall ballot, which may not affect the presidential election outcome since the Democrat will presumably get all of Washington's electoral vote. But the process matters. You know, democracy Also in the Washington legislature, Joanne, a proposal to restrict mobile device use by public school students, and they don't mean scooters when they say mobile device. They're talking cell phones or smartphones, and I would so like to see that. I would so like to see it restricted, but I think you have to be really careful about it. When you think about it from the kids' point of view, we as a society have said to them, you know, we're not going to do the other protections that we could do. We're not going to, you know, have gun control. We're not going to have ammunition control. We're just going to, you know, that's going to happen. But we're going to take away something that you have that might feel comforting to you, that might be able to protect you or help you in some way. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to let them hang on to it. But keep it in, the, keep it in their pockets. You know, it's obvious if they take it out. And boy, is it harming. You know, I look around at, at, at kids. You know, I don't have a kid myself, and I know how hard it is. To restrict their use, but I think you know if it's a school policy, keep your phone in your pocket. But I, well, from what I hear, it's not really working. The, uh, you know, kids, Independence kids are, are they have it out. It's a big complaint that kids are texting in class. Sure, it was a big. Well, complaint they pa- you know when I was we passed notes when you know in my day we right. passed notes back and forth, and there were rules. You're not allowed to pass notes, and if the teacher saw you, she grabbed the note or he grabbed the note and read it out loud to the class, and that was awful. Right. I, it seems to me like 
it's doable. It's, it's, I think it's doable, and I think it should be done. What did you say in that note that you wrote as a child? <laughs> I'll never tell. Okay. I wasn't caught. <laughs> so maybe no to telephones in school, but a yes to artificial intelligence in school this week. The state school superintendent, Chris Rakedahl, issued new guidance about how schools can use AI in the classroom. Artificial intelligence is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's in things that we can't even imagine today. Don't our students deserve the opportunity to learn what is it? What's in there? What are those algorithms doing? How do they impact learning? How do they impact our lives so that our students are on the front end? Washington's the fifth state in America to issue this kind of guidance. It calls for school leaders to give teachers professional development on how to incorporate AI into their teaching. I mean, I think uh, having having used a large number of AI tools, I think either Superintendent Ragdoll is overselling <laughs> the benefits of AI or taking a very expansive definition of what AI is. Um, I, I mean, I agree that uh, AI probably does have a place in the classroom and, and that teachers and students should be experimenting with it. Um, still curious to see what that could be in practice in a way that is helpful to students. Um, but uh, it's 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 going to be interesting to me to see whether or not we can actually come up with some of those applications. A deputy in the in the super, state superintendent's office said that a teacher in high school, for example, could have 150 kids, can't provide specific feedback, but that AI can. But you're questioning the quality of that feedback, perhaps? I am certainly questioning the quality of that feedback. Okay. <laughs> Uh, another story this week, after Seattle's I-5 protest recently, there's now a bill in the legislature to increase penalties for intentionally blocking highways. The protest against Israel bombardments in Gaza shut down the freeway for five hours, backed up traffic for six miles, no arrests yet, although those are theoretically still possible. Under this proposed law, people who block traffic on state highways could be charged with a gross misdemeanor instead of just misdemeanor disorderly conduct, which is what protesters now face. And if the highway obstruction creates a risk of injury or slows down an ambulance, or if people ignore an officer's order to disperse, they could be charged with a Class C felony. Yes? One thing I wanted to I wanted to point out is that uh, the protesters who shut down the highway have said repeatedly that they had uh, steps in place that would have allowed an ambulance through uh, their their protest. Uh, I think that How that's, would they do that? Uh, that's yeah. a great question. I, I'd love to know more about that. But uh, that seems have, that seems to be something that they had considered and, and they were sensitive to uh, how their protest could possibly affect mm-hmm. emergency care. Uh, in other news this week, Washington's the first state to challenge that supermarket merger, Kroger and Albertsons. The state attorney general says this proposed $25 billion deal would eliminate head-to-head competition between the state's two biggest grocery operators, meaning fewer choices for shoppers. The FTC is still weighing that merger. This week, the city council, Seattle City Council, chose eight finalists to fill a vacant seat. One of them will fill that seat. And KUOW politics reporter David Hyde says the front runner appears to be Chinatown International District activist Tanya Wu. Three city council members have named Wu as their top choice. And over the weekend, a letter leaked from political insider Tim Cease. He urged the business community to back Wu. Jonathan Pabacola reported that Tim Cease, a former deputy mayor, told donors to take advantage of the success they'd had giving money to pro-business candidates. Quote, the independent campaign expenditure success earned you the right to let the council know not to offer the left the consolation prize of this council seat. <laughs> yeah, the, the boosted volume of a voice with money behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I thought we all had the right to let the city council right, know. We do, we do, but some of us have more right, apparently. I see. Uh, yeah, I think the uh, the question here, the, the one of the big questions for the last few years has been uh, the um, sort of the moving to the center of the Seattle City Council. And um, I think everyone expects Tanya Wu. The, I think that Tanya Wu appears to be the kind of the inside track for this, which would bring the, the council again further towards the center and kind of a, away from the um, idealist, a more uh, progressive um Depending what you call the center, yes. Yes, right. Yeah, it's always true. <laughs> um, yeah, I like I like when people call these uh, all all Democrats uh, conservative. Right. Um, so Seattle conservative is different than right. Um, so yeah, I think um, I suspect that the business community is probably going to be more happy with this council than it was with the previous one. Right. 
A couple more things and then a reason to smile. This week's weather's got our mountain snowpack up to about 73% of normal this time of year. We started at a deficit from the drought. And uh, this week, the UW introduced its new head football coach, Jed Fish, who comes here from University of Arizona, replacing Kalen DeBoer, who just left for Alabama, whose departure has resulted in a bunch of players who had committed to the Huskies uncommitting because apparently they'd only made a noncommittal commitment. (laughs) Okay. Um, Oh, uh, we didn't talk about Costco yet. Will you tell us, Catherine, what Costco is doing? Scanning your membership card now? So you can't share it? Yes. Costco has said that they are going to start scanning your membership card when you walk into the store instead of having an employee uh, do a quick little visual check of it. And if you have ever borrowed your friend's Costco card, you know how easy it is to get into Costco with somebody else's card. However, um, just put your thumb on the photo. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not endorsing that, I should say. No, not at all. until recently, though, it's it's been pretty difficult to actually buy anything at Costco with somebody else's card because the cashiers will uh, will check and and do a, a pretty a pretty thorough thorough check of it. Uh, but in 2019, Costco began rolling out self checkout, uh, and as we know, the problems with self checkout are legion. And it has turned out that a lot of folks have been using somebody else's Costco card and checking out at self checkout. Costco is getting pretty concerned about this, so they're moving away from uh, two positions that they had previously held. One of them was. Our cashiers can do it better than self-checkout. They're staking a claim, and self-checkout is the way of the future. Mm-hmm. And the other one was uh, Costco had previously said that uh, uh, organized retail crime, retail theft, which has been a big panic among retailers, was not something that they were particularly worried about. And I would say that the fact that they're about to make it start queuing up and scanning our cars to get into their stores <laughs> suggests that maybe they do have some concerns after all. Speaking of uh, queuing up, speaking of things that, that uh, take a, a frustratingly long time, I did a terrible do- job of clock management. So we are right at the end of the show. I only have time to say I smiled because that listener that we quoted earlier who filed that uh, attempt to block Trump from the, from the ballot, from the primary ballot, Frankie Ithaca got the idea listening to KUOW, an interview where the Secretary of State said nobody's made a challenge and the deadline was near. And this listener thought, well, I'm a registered voter. And whether you share this person's politics or not, I thought that was an example of how local news coverage, which we value on this program, can uh, engage people to take some action. That's impact right there. That's impact, baby. Uh, okay, we got to go. Um, we have been talking to, that was uh, Catherine Long there, investigations correspondent at Insider, freelance health journalist Joe Ansel Berner, Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin. I just can't get over how much I like seeing you all. Every yeah. single time you come, thank you. Thank that you. hour flew by. Thanks, flew Bill. by. Thank you, producer Kevin Kniestet, Bernard Willett running the board, and we'll do this again next week.